Welcome to Engaging the Experts, a series of interviews with pharmacy practitioners and educators on cutting-edge topics. In part two of this three-part interview on revised USP Chapter 797, William Zelmer talks with Patricia Keenley, Ashley Duty, and Eric Castango about changes that may be needed to get your facility ready. This installment is produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by Fresenius Cobby. This is William Zelmer for the ASHP program, Engaging the Experts. I'm speaking with Patricia Keenley, Ashley Duty, and Eric Costango, who presented a session at the 2019 ASHP Summer Meetings on ensuring compliance with the revised USP Chapter 797. Patty is Director of Accreditation and Medication Safety at Cardinal Health Innovative Delivery Systems. Ashley is Clinical Pharmacy Operations Manager at Children's Mercy in Kansas City, Missouri. Eric is President and CEO of Clinical IQ, LLC, and Critical Point, LLC, in Madison, New Jersey. Eric, uh, to further set the stage for our discussion, please explain the distinction in the revised Chapter 797 between Category 1 and Category 2 sterile compounded products. So, so the difference bill is going to be based on the, in, uh, the particulate count or whether you're dealing where your primary engineering control is located whether that room is either isoclassified, that it's maintaining a state of control, the particulate count, the air exchanges, the humidity, the temperatures is being maintained. And category one is a any type of primary engineering control, biological safety cabinet, laminar flow hood, um, any number of the, the restricted uh, access barrier systems, formerly known as CACIs and CAIs, um, located in an unclassified room. And, because we know that facilities can influence the sterility of a medication, those have shorter dating. And so that is the influence there. And then certainly now with the formal definition of a clean room suite, both an isoclassified anti-room and an isoclassified buffer room. And so you have a greater state of control in those spaces, so you are afforded the longer beyond use dates. I think people may look at that category one and two, and I think we all probably did too when we first saw it and say, oh, this is a very different thing that's in the current 797, and it's not from those. Right. You know, think of category one as being a segregated compounding area, and think of category two as being a full clean room suite. And that suite truly means at least two separate rooms, right. a, an anti-room room with a room with fixed, doors right, fixed walls and doors <laughs> and and a buffer room right. it can't be a single area with both with a piece of tape if it is you can still use that but it needs SCA. to meet the requirement of a segregated compounding area right, or category one eric you said in your presentation that all hospitals will be challenged by right. beyond use dating for category one preparations yes, please elaborate on that including how this change might affect pharmacy operations so as far back as 1999, I think it was the state of New Jersey allowed isolators, um, compounding uh, RABs, now known as RABs, to be located in an unclassified room and be able to um, take advantage of the default BUDs in the chapter. And that 
change in the in the definition of category one now is that those isolators that people deployed as a cost saving measure as opposed to building a, a clean room suite is no longer afforded to them. So I think that the strategies that they chose 10, 15 years ago as a cost avoidance strategy, because again, clean room construction can be very expensive, is now lost and now it will challenge because now the BUDs are shorter, so you can't go past 24 hours refrigerated. And so now this is gonna you know, require some creative thinking the use of ready-to-use or commercially available products. Certainly, um, critical access hospitals or hospitals that chose that as an alternative strategy to a clean room is now gonna have to reevaluate and determine whether they need to build a full-blown clean room suite to be able to optimize their workflow without impacting headcount. I think we need to make sure people understand, though, that it's not just compounding isolators oh, in that absolutely. segregated compounding area. It's any PEC, right. uh, whether it's a traditional hood or, right. or one of the compounding isolators. You know, another thing that comes up there is the whole point of ready-to-use yeah. preparations and products. And we have a larger responsibility outside of compounding just to make sure that our patients are getting things safely. Um, certainly, uh, CMS and accrediting organizations expect us to provide ready-to-use dosage forms for practitioners to give. Wonderful. So, you know, Eric, your point about, you know, the ready to use, the pre-mix, the vial bag systems, all of those kind of things kind of play in. Do you use, and I know from a pediatric facility, you often can't use those because of the limitations of doses. Yeah, it's much harder to find things that are ready to use for pediatrics. Um, we can be creative sometimes, but um, I think a lot of those are starting to be uh, created because the pediatric community has voiced a need uh, because our patients um, do range in size quite a bit, um, but they're generally very critical and critically ill. So uh, we try to do the best we can, but there's definitely a need in the market for those types of things. And ASHP has another effort on the standardization yeah. of concentrations yes. too that plays into this as very, well. Very you know, when you look at some of the things that people have been making, 40 different concentrations of things, why? You know, look at it first that you can limit some of those things and really kind of hone down what needs right. to be compounded. You know, I've heard some hospital pharmacists say that uh, they will now uh, have nurses prepare category one sterile products in patient care areas. Do you think that's likely to happen? And what is your advice on this point, Eric? First, I think it's a dangerous practice because when you, we look at patient safety, certainly, you know, the nurses are taxed. You know, patient care, I, I would rather have the nurse focus their energy on delivering patient care as opposed to preparing medications. And certainly, I'm sure we will see this push back out to the nursing. But I think there are other checks and balances, certainly the accreditation organizations, um, I know CMS frowns upon that, um, patient safety or I ISMP uh, frowns upon that. So I, I think it would be ill-advised because it's only a matter of time before we have a catastrophic event happen again. And then we're going to be saying, how did this happen? And, and that's not a good thing. And one of the things we mentioned was USP 797 is a minimum standard. Right. There is no reason you have to be that minimum. Right, right. <laughs> we have lived for 11 years now with a, uh, that one hour no rule. 
situation that I think works extremely well in most hospitals all the time. You know, you may have some, some issues that, you know, where you have a, an ICU satellite, for example, or things like that, that maybe this gives you a little bit more wiggle rooms, but it doesn't have to. And I would really encourage people to stick with that one hour time. Ashley. Yeah, I don't think we have any intention of changing anything we do at my hospital because, frankly, it scares me. We have an IV workflow system, and we know that even from the data that we see in our system that our technicians who prepare medications all day, you know, select the wrong drug, uh, select the wrong volume. You know, there's a lot of really, as we get into more complicated medication therapies, there's more rigor around how things are prepared safely. And so to think about that with the dilutions that we do in pediatrics, um, I, I have no intention of letting our nurses attempt that because I really think that we're the best people to do that. One of the other issues that we have to remember is that 797 isn't only about infection control. Right. It isn't only about what we can, you know, do to a product. It, it needs to also consider the safety of that and the stability of those drugs and the dilutions and are we getting the right ingredients in there, mm. the right components. Right. It's like, you know, you, you can't fly a plane with one wing. You know, sterility, certainly everybody focuses on the sterility, but it's the right drug at the right dose for the right patient. Mm -hmm. And so that is another, that's the other wing. So it's accuracy and sterility. Mm -hmm. Well, let's uh, dig a little deeper on some of the major changes in 797. Uh, for example, facility-related design. Right. So certainly, I think if people are, and we'll focus on category one, you know, so if we choose the category one, you've got to make sure that the surfaces that you have in this space are cleanable because, again, even uncontrolled spaces can pose a risk of microbial contamination if you don't maintain it. I mean, we generate a lot of particulates. You know, humans are the biggest, uh, you know, uh, sources of contamination. And so certainly maintenance is going to be important. So the surfaces that you choose in these spaces have to be cleanable and have to withstand that rigor. With a clean room suite where you have these isoclassified spaces, we now have defined minimum air exchanges for the anteroom. This was one of those glaring errors that, you know, I think frustrated the 2008 committee the, on when that was released is like, how did we miss that? And so there it were silence there. And so a lot of people were like, well, show me where it says it in the chapter that I have to meet these air exchanges. So now using the FDA aseptic processing guide, that minimum exchanges for an ISO class eight anteroom is 20. Now, we have filtered air coming in the room. You can make a decision of where you place those HEPA filters, and a lot of people have chosen, for cost reasons, to install those in the main air handler a good distance away from the clean room, and that has been identified as problematic. So now those HEPA filters have to be moved into the ceiling and have to be located. You know, it's got to be the air has to pass through the HEPA filter just before it gets into the room. So I think in those areas, Bill, that's where you're going to see a lot of the um, cost. Also monitoring, you know, I think making sure that people understand that the pressure gauges are there. I mean, that's always been there, but temperature and humidity, because humidity was never a required, um, again, it was a best practice, but never a required um, parameter that had to be mon uh, monitored. Um, and so whatever um, monitors have to be installed have to be um, done and then routinely monitored. There's a couple of other facility issues, too, that 
are a little bit peripheral to 797, but integral to the whole process. Uh, one is the fact that if you're handling hazardous drugs, right. you also have to pay attention to what's in 800. Yes. And there's, there's details in 797, but there's more details about hazardous drugs, particularly chemo in 800. Actually, you mentioned the allergens, and allergen extract preparation remains in 797, but there's also some facility things in there that weren't in there before. And the other piece that's been removed from 797 are radiopharmaceutical handling. Right. And people may say, well, gee, I don't do any nuclear stuff in my pharmacy. It doesn't matter. But it does, because you need to look at that from a, a nuclear medicine department. So there's facility issues that you need to pay attention to in 825. Ashley, I'd like to turn to you uh, with this question. When dealing with the design and construction of 797 compliant facilities, what are the main success factors, based on your experience, in addressing this matter? So we've undergone a, a few different construction projects, and I, I think that's probably the most challenging thing I've done in my career so far is working through those construction projects and interfacing with engineers and architects who may or may not know pharmacy regulations very well. Uh, and so it's really about getting involved early, as early as possible, and helping influence who your hospital is using um, as an engineer on the project and talking to your peers about who they've used and what some of their challenges may have been. Um, and then, you know, speaking with your certifier and getting them engaged potentially in that discussion uh, early before things are and decisions are made. So as an example, a long time ago at a, a hospital that I'm aware of, you know, they decided to change the design of the clean room suite to have the anti-room come first, then the negative room, negative buffer room, then the positive buffer room. Well, that doesn't work. It doesn't work as far as airflow, but they thought it would work better because the size of the room was bigger than one or the other. So you need to know about those things before all the construction's done, uh, because then you're gonna save yourself some time, energy, headaches, money, et cetera. And I think it's also important to get the staff involved is to have them, the, you know, the exercise I like to do with folks is imagine you doing a spaghetti diagram and how are you gonna move in and out of the room? How are you gonna move product in? How are you gonna move compounded preparations out? And making sure that the staff have ownership in the way that that room is laid out because they're gonna live in that house, in that room, for, you know, for a long period of time. And so if it doesn't make sense from a workflow perspective, you can build the best room, but from a workflow perspective, it can make you have to jump through hoops and, and play twister in the clean room just to be able to follow the, the minimum standards of the chapter. I think one of the things from a design perspective that works pretty well is find some place, maybe it's your parking garage, but find some place where you have some flat space that has the same room and tape it off tape it and on. have the folks walk through it, see if it works. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> see if, if the workflow matches what yeah. you wanna do. What about success factors uh, in addressing facility certification and environmental monitoring? Eric? I, you know, I'm, I, you know, having been involved in the 2005 and 10 cycle, there was a lot of emotion associated with certification and what kind of procedures were going to be used. And it's important to understand is that the certifiers play an, a critical role in making sure that the pharmacists know that their space is appropriate and in compliance with 797 because again, it's all about patient safety. So now the chapter has formally embraced and, and called out 
the Controlled Environment Testing Association, their sterile compounding facility um, certification guidance documents. Because again, pharmacists have to be part microbiologist, part facility designer. Now we're getting into certification. And it's not something that pharmacists and technicians should run away from. I think for those operationally minded, they should embrace this because now this is something they can, re this is sexy. I, you know, <laughs> I like to say this really is the sexy part of pharmacy. And I think understanding, but also being able to hold your certifier, your professional accountable to those tests will ensure that you know that your facility is operating correctly at all times. And I think uh, we talked about it yesterday, when you get your report and they just give you your check marks like compliant, 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 it's really tempting to just sign it and file it away. But no, you really need to spend time digesting what they put in there and what your airflows were and where maybe you have some discrepancies and have a good conversation. Your certifier shouldn't just be coming in and saying, everything was great, good job. You know, they really should be helping you think about what you can improve on, where they saw some um, things that maybe could be improved. And that way you can really better understand what's going on, again, with your patient, quote unquote, your clean room. There's one very particular item that folks need to take a look at too. To date, in current 797, which handles all the hazardous drug pieces right now, there's only been a requirement to have a, a certain negative pressure in yes. a buffer room. Yes. But 800 brings in a specific range. Mm -hmm. So you may have your certifier that has said, yes, this meets criteria, because truly it does meet the current 797, the 2008 version, but it's not gonna be meeting that criteria on December 1. So right. that's something very specific to take a look at in your certification report. Mm -hmm. and, and, and some rooms can be too negative, and that yeah. could be problematic from an environmental monitoring perspective. Any uh, brief comments on personnel training and evaluation? I think that we now have clarity. Um, now we know what the key topic areas that we have to make sure that our people are competent. You know, we wouldn't get on a plane without making sure that we have a competent pilot. What I'd like to say is that if you work in a 150-bed hospital or bigger and you're a technician, you have as much responsibility as a pilot because every day, if you made one dose for every patient, you can influence 150 lives. So I think we have to embrace and celebrate technicians and pharmacists who like this, but we also have to make sure that we have a standardized curriculum of those key areas that they have to be knowledgeable in. And I think the chapter explicitly calls out those key areas the, of competency. The core competencies. The core yeah. competencies. One thing that um, kind of is a bug of mine too is so many times I hear people say, well, these folks don't need to go through this competency because they're just checking right. IVs. In my mind, there's no just checking. If you're checking an IV, you have to be aware of what those minimum requirements are in there and you need to go through that certification process as well. Yeah, but we're old school, Patty, because we, we were technicians yeah. at one time. <laughs> well, let me just ask this. Is there anything else about the new requirements that you'd like to call out for listeners? You know, I say this all the time. I said this last night, Bill. I, I think people have to download the chapter, they have to read it, and they have to use it as the resource of truth. Certainly, this broadcast, the presentations, webinars, anything that you hear will augment and reinforce what is in the chapter, but you can also be a sanity check to make sure that whoever's presenting knows their stuff, but that has to be your source of truth, but you also have to know what your State Board of Pharmacy requires because, again, you will be held accountable to those standards as we've seen in Massachusetts here.
That concludes part two of this three-part Engaging the Experts interview. The other two parts focus on key changes in USP Chapter 797 and practical approaches for attaining compliance. To listen to these, visit www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash USP changes, or you can access them via iTunes as a podcast. Other educational resources on this topic are also available at the initiative website.